0: You're listening to the Murphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Morphology Podcast. I'm your host, Kathy, a.k.a. Murph, and I'm here to share with you interviews about biking experiences from bicyclists who have pedaled to amazing places within the United States. Each week, we will get to know new people and explore great destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these great adventures cyclists share, you may wonder why haven't I done that yet? Well, with me today on the show is Megan Hopman. Hi, Megan. Hi, how's it going? Good. Glad to have you on the uh, podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited about this. Sure. Well, thanks to Pat Maben, which I'm assuming that you know Pat pretty well uh, through your recent oh, yes. adventures. Um, well, because of Pat, we got to say a, a shout out to Pat Mabin and to the folks at Wear. Um, but thanks to Pat, I followed Megan on social media and I watched you reach an incredible feat of pedaling a spin bike for 28 continuous hours. I'm still like, I have to say it slow because it's just (laughs) mind-boggling. I mean, completely (laughs) (laughs) mind-boggling. Yes, that was a big undertaking for sure. (laughs) And of course, you know, we're going to talk about that later. Um, But then I discovered... Megan is passionate about so much more than just being on that spin bike and doing that event. Um, So I had to get her on the podcast. So I'm so glad that you decided and took the time to be on today. So I described you in my intro as uh, Megan Hopman, cyclist, advocate, world record holder, and so much more. So hopefully we're going to touch on a little bit of all of that. Well, thanks for that. That's a super warm welcome and introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. Well, uh, start out by telling the listeners where you live and what bicycling is like in your area.
1: Sure. So, I am blessed to actually split my time between my two favorite cities, which are Golden, Colorado, and Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, nice. And the riding in both of them is spectacular. Mm -hmm. Um, Both locations. And by the way, my office is based in Golden, but I also practice in Arizona as well. Um, My office is four miles from home, so I'm super blessed to have a very doable commute, and it includes bike lanes and a really wide shoulder, or I can ride dirt uh, on a dirt trail on North Table Mountain on my way to work, so I get to pick between pavement or dirt here for my my work commute. Um, Sometimes I'll even run the, the trail to come to work, which ends up being about an eight-mile round-trip run, which is great with nice. my dog. Yeah. And um, the riding in both is really fantastic, which is why I spend my time in these two places. Uh, Golden offers a lot of climbing. We are known for Lookout Mountain here, and uh, I can ride north to Boulder and north beyond that, even up towards Lyons and Estes Park, or I can ride south from my door down to... Chatfield and even south of um, Chatfield towards like Monument and then I can ride straight east from my house and end up in downtown Denver which we'll do from time to time just go grab coffee at a downtown REI which funny enough is where I most recently ran into Pat oh, nice. <laughs> um, so it's a cool place to just bump into people and um, really the riding culture in both places is very strong both boast a lot of really strong group rides mm-hmm. and just Uh, cycling communities in general. Um, These are obviously places that cyclists are drawn to live and to vacation. And so you see a very prevalent number of cyclists on the roads in both places, which I like because I think that the more of us there are riding, the more visible it is, the more motorists and other community members are on notice of us as equal road users. For sure. Yeah.
0: And you didn't mention um, the thing that I think of when I think of Scottsdale and uh, Golden is the view. I mean, you've got mountains in both (laughs) locations. You know, I'm I live in Iowa and I'm not going to boast, but we do have a, we have a landfill in my town that was transformed oh. into a recreational area and it's actually called Mount Trashmore and that's, that's all I have. Oh, that's so, funny.
1: So I. That's funny. Well, I can commiserate or I can say I, <laughs> I, I can relate because I spend the bulk of my life South Dakota and Nebraska. Oh, and sure. Yeah. So I definitely am a Midwest girl and. I feel very lucky now to live here in Colorado and you're not wrong about the views. Um, There are no, there are no dull bike rides. Um, But that said, I will say the Midwest has something really special, which a lot of these bigger cities don't have, which is just the remarkable number of gravel roads and the um, absence of traffic that that typically brings. I've done dirty Kansas several times. I've done gravel worlds in Lincoln. I've done several um, gravel events in the the Midwest region and Mm -hmm. You really can't argue with the the gravel situation there, which I assume you you also have some access to sure. where you're at.
0: Yeah, the total truth there. And you know, truth be known, I I choose to live here in Iowa, so uh, it's my own. You know. It's my own fault that I get to look at a mountain of trash every day. but <laughs>
1: and, and Well, I, you know, the Midwest has the friendliest people you'll ever meet, yeah. so you have that going for you, for I,
0: sure. I do agree with that. I was in Scottsdale in October and did tour to Scottsdale. And oh my gosh, yes. what a fun ride. And the views, again, were just amazing. And uh, every route that they took us on had great uh, bike lanes.
1: That is one thing I will say that uh, Arizona and Scottsdale specifically has over my experience here in the Denver area and many places, including my my long tenure in Nebraska, is the prevalence of bike lanes. Mm -hmm. The Arizona um, government in general, and I should say more specifically just city planning and, and the road crew planning situation down there, they really do prioritize bike lanes and you're actually pretty hard pressed to find roads that don't have bike lanes Mm -hmm. down there and it's really nice that that obviously removes a lot of the tension between cars and bikes
0: yes definitely definitely well uh, give us a little snippet about you you know maybe what you do your involvement in the cycling community and all kinds of that stuff
1: oh gosh well uh where to start um So I'm obviously an avid cyclist myself, and I still race a fair bit, although not like I once did. I was a Cat One road and track cyclist mm. for many years and raced a lot on the on the velodrome and lots of criteriums and stage races and things. Um, in most recent years, I was doing Ironman Arizona and then getting more into gravel. That's where Dirty Kansas and that kind of stuff came up. Mm-hmm. And really where my passion has evolved is just incorporating the bike in daily life. Mm -hmm. So definitely the commuting side of things and trying to figure out how we get more people using bikes to do life instead of using the car. Mm -hmm. Um, The team that I sponsor is called the Bike Ambassadors, and we are not really a race team, although some of us still race from time to time. The focus instead is that we try to impart all the tips and tricks and lessons that we've learned for other people to also start learning how to commute. And um, that's really a big part of my passion. So that's kind of where my, like my bike, my bike gospel preaching is right now, um, if if you will. And then I run a law firm. This is our 10th year now where we exclusively represent injured cyclists and Mm. we do so across the country. So um, the the website or the the tag for the firm has always been Mm thecyclistlawyer.com, and it frankly evolved from when I started my practice at the age of 29, deciding that I was a cyclist first and a lawyer second, Mm -hmm. and so I became the cyclist lawyer, and obviously also a cyclist um, attorney or an attorney for cyclists, but it really came from me being a cyclist first and then becoming a lawyer Mm 2nd and um, have just been very blessed to represent amazing clients across the country for the last decade, working really alongside many of those clients still to try and make cycling safer. So it's more than just a law firm that kind of churns and burns files and you know is driven by the almighty dollar. It's been very much about the bike advocacy side of things mm-hmm. and using a for-profit business to generate money to then funnel into things like People for Bikes, the world record that you mentioned, um, sponsoring events like Dirty Kansas, sponsoring groups and organizations that grow the cycling community. So that's been really um, fun and fulfilling. And so as you can probably tell, the theme throughout my life for the last like 20 years really has been bikes. And it's, uh, it's definitely my community and where I tend to spend most of my time socializing and, um, and my dating life as well, you know, so it's, uh, it's, definitely a life theme.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's always nice to meet people who uh, you have a hard time figuring out um, what they do for a living versus what they're passionate about, because it overlaps. You know what I mean? Like you're into cycling and then that is also part of your job. But then you're also, you know, doing the advocacy thing. It's I love that.
1: Well thanks and I do have to be candid and I and I will confess that this is an area where I have historically brushed over. I've been doing podcasts and interviews for years and people do find this very interesting and Outside Magazine did a feature on us and Brian Gumble had me on HBO Sports and mm. you know it's it is super interesting but I do have to be candid and sort of with the caveat and something I've come to appreciate more in recent years is that it is wonderful to take something you're passionate about and turn it into your profession. There is, however, also a dark side to that. Mm. And I guess my advice would be to someone who's thinking about how to try and turn their, their hobby or their passion into a profession is just to be really clear up front about boundaries and sort of where the work starts, starts and stops. Um, because I have certainly been guilty of letting the work blur to my personal life oh, and my sure. personal time. And the lines get so blurred that at times something that really should be fun and it should be recreational and a hobby really ends up just becoming an extension of work. Mm-hmm. And the danger of that is, is of course, burnout and just really um, checking in with oneself regularly on, is this actually filling me back up or is this actually work that? that's dressed up like it should be fun. And and in fact, it's depleting me. So yeah. So anyway, I'll just I'll just add that because I don't feel that I've been, you know, very, very candid about that historically. It's a double edged sword for sure.
0: And that's great advice to give somebody who, like you said, may be (laughs) dabbling towards that. So that's awesome. Well, okay, so we have to talk about we have to talk about this amazing accomplishment in December. So you are a world record holder, which is just Mind-blowing that I'm talking to somebody who's a (laughs) world record holder. Um, So you now hold the title of world record holder for longest static cycling class. So for people that don't know what static cycling is, it's basically being on a spin bike or a stationary bike. Um, I I already know because I saw it online but I you know in my head when I first read that I'm envisioning you know like remember the old school airdyne bikes that like wrestlers used (laughs) you know the arms go back and forth and the (laughs) the wheels like a big fan like that's what I was thinking like oh my god 28 hours on that (laughs) but no (laughs) that's very funny that's a great visual yeah I
1: have this like dark dungy like gym impression in mind or sort of very rocky one uh, vision no that's funny that would actually be an amazing world record to attempt we should look into yeah, that yeah or at least it, uh, it would be a good no, this, uh, commercial <laughs> oh totally yeah. yes well we'd get arm workout too which um, would be a plus <laughs> for sure but no this was far more you know modern yeah. and um really what it just included was you know a, a cycling studio you know being on spin bikes so the things that we think about when we think about johnny d or spinning just the uh mm-hmm. The stationary bike with the flywheel and the resistance knob and um, things like a spin bike that you would see in a gym or a rec center. And we utilized a spin studio, a cycling specific studio. It's a national franchise called Cycle Bar. And that is the sole sole service that they provide is 45 minute long indoor cycling classes for people to get their work out.
0: And it looked like... And it was wonderful. It looked like a, um, like a studio made for filming. Like, you know, the lighting was amazing. I'm sure that you did a lot of stuff behind the scenes. But like, when I would watch you guys, you know, reaching your goal, I'm like, are they actually in a like a warehouse in California that they've turned into (laughs) a spin bike studio? Or is it really a business? (laughs) No, that's
1: actually how the cycle bars are built out. One oh, of the wow. really fun things and ways that they keep their energy and their vibe so high yeah. is that the instructor has a panel of lighting options and music options. And then in addition, they have this feature where all of the bikes have power and data that is projected up on the screen. So there's a little friendly competition within mm-hmm. the, the class itself as well. So yeah, we can't take credit for much of that. Our film crew had a few lights set up, but really that's just the way those studios are designed. And it did blend itself to really wonderful yeah. uh, cinematography, which I'm happy to announce. And hopefully I can get the link to you soon to share with your listeners. We will have a TV episode that we made of the entire experience. Um, my my co-host, Ryan Avery, uh, his his profession is giving keynotes and breaking world records, and he has a, a channel called BreakingHistory.tv, And so our episode will be up very soon. And they actually just recently won an Emmy for one of their more recent episodes. So
0: um,
1: they're really compelling. His whole belief is yes, it's cool to go tackle a world record, but he always likes to partner it with doing something good for the local community. So in Mm -hmm. this case, he had already decided he wanted to break this world record. He wanted it to benefit some organization in cycling. He reached out to me last April and said, here's what I want to do. Are you interested in being involved? And who should we make the beneficiary? And I said, hell, yes, count me in. I would love to be the instructor because I've been teaching spin for 20 years. So that was kind of logical um, Mm -hmm. thing for me to do is to be the instructor. And then also, we definitely need to make People for Bikes the beneficiary Mm -hmm. because they are at the forefront of bike
0: advocacy here Mm -hmm. in the country. That's for sure. And they're a Colorado based company, aren't they? They are. They yeah. are
1: here in Boulder, which, which which paired well with obviously the event was here in Denver, and so it was very nice to have people for bikes on site during the event several of their members volunteer their head of marketing was on site and then we also had one of their staff members as one of the riders so we got to work very closely with them leading up to it and during the event
0: oh very good so you kind of gave us an idea how this idea was hatched but Mm -hmm. how how in the heck did you pull a team together like did you you're like (laughs) it might be a few hours you can do it or did you just right up front say all right here's what we have to do (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, I was very candid with people. From day one, we always knew that we wanted to go 28 hours. The reason for that was back in April, the current world record was 26 hours. We wanted to beat it by two. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the meantime, in August, another group out of Australia that actually broke it and went 27. So we were glad that that we had already planned on 28. Sure. And then I started asking people, I started asking people that I would that I'd raced against. I asked people who are still currently racing. I asked people who are um, what I would consider like very elite, you know, former Olympian, former professional, current professional cyclists. Mm -hmm. people that I in my mind assumed would just jump all over this. And we were asking everyone to commit to helping with the fundraising for people for bikes. And I was really, really surprised with how many rejections I got. Mm. And then I started just speaking openly about it just among my friendship circles and people that my spin classes and people who are, just ordinary humans like myself who have day jobs who are not professional cyclists, who just have a passion for cycling, most of whom have never ridden a bike even remotely close to 28 hours right. long. You know, a few of us have done like 24 hour mountain bike races or a few of us had done Dirty Kansas, A few of us had done Ironman. But, you know, we're not talking about a group of people by and large who had done, you know, mm-hmm. like Tour de France or something like that. And what was really cool is is that these and, and I'm I'm including myself in this when I'm saying these just really ordinary people with day jobs and kind of average cycling um, skill and fitness, they all started basically saying, you know, uh, if this is important to you, that's important to me, and I'm in, and count me in. And it was wonderful the way this group of people took shape. And then also Cycle Bar sent a handful or so of its, uh, you know, business um, attendees, people mm-hmm. who do their spin classes. So these a lot of these folks have never ridden bikes outside. They've only just ever done spin class inside, and some of them had never really done much longer than, like, one or two spin classes uh, in a row. Mm -hmm. So, needless to say, all of us were very nervous about how this event would stretch us. It was a very audacious goal for all of us. Um, Most of us were nervous, not so much about, you know, the finishing per se, because the intensity itself was fairly low. It was just the duration. Mm You know, like orthopedically, is our body going to hang in there? What's it going to be like trying to stay awake all night? You know, a lot of us are really obsessed about good sleep and what does that look like if we're up for 30 hours straight? And just a lot of general like uh, apprehension and anxiety, myself included. I didn't really fully realize how
0: nervous and anxious I
1: was about it prior until the thing was over with. And I felt like a really big weight was off my chest. <laughs> I can imagine,
0: yeah. Well, um, so, you know, we've talked about it a few times. It's you know, it was twenty eight hours on a bike. What was training like? Because it's not like you're gonna go out and do a eighteen hour bike ride outside as a training or maybe you did. I don't know. How does that work?
1: Yeah, no, great question. I would say everyone approached it a little bit differently. So A couple people wanted to just know what it was like to be on a spin bike for a long time. So a few of the riders did 10 and 12 hour stints on um, spin bikes Mm -hmm. in their home or at their local gym just to see what that felt like practicing by taking breaks and practicing eating and drinking on the bike. Um, A few people just kind of kept doing their normal riding and working out regimen and just hoped that, you know, fitness and um extra tenacity would get them through it. Right, right. A few people strung together a series of spin classes and, and basically tried to see how that would feel if they did three or four spin classes back to back. My general approach, which was really a strange space for me to be in, was to set aside goals of mileage or power or intervals or strength training. And for me, it was just logging the volume of time on the saddle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what most of us that compete would consider junk miles, really, where it's like zone one, maybe zone two, just mindlessly Mm pedaling and just having your butt on the saddle and just getting used to being in that bike posture. So that's really how I approached it is just especially on the weekends leading up to it, just trying to log seven or eight hour days Mm -hmm. um, on the bike seat. And, um, you know, like what aches and pains showed up, what started to hurt. One ride I did my toes got to be a real problem for me and i had to wrap them with band-aids and i thought okay i'm glad i know that that is a problem ahead of time Mm -hmm. nevertheless we all experienced things that we could never have predicted during the effort Um, people had numb fingers people had numb toes there was a lot of like neck discomfort uh several of us ended up with knee and ankle issues that we've never before had and uh, you know part of that's just that you're on a spin bike which is not the normal geometry of a bike that you would customarily ride until your body's having to adjust Mm -hmm. to, you know, 190,000 revolutions on some foreign bike. Oh, my gosh. Um, So we all came out of it with some aches and pains. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, and then, you know, as far as training goes, you had the bonus of also... You were going to be or you did lead this event. So you had to also come up with 28 hours of, you know, either uh, class, you know, (laughs) stuff that you've done in the past or new things or keeping people motivated. Like, what was all that training about
1: Yeah, so definitely a mental component there and also just a recognition of the rules stipulated that only one person can be the instructor. So if the instructor falls down for some reason, the whole thing's over with. So a recognition that if I got sick beforehand, we were in trouble. If I lost my voice, we were in trouble. If my bike broke, I was in trouble. Uh. Um, if I started to have some physiological or biological issues, if my stomach started to hurt, like Mm -hmm. there was a lot of pressure that I felt on me because at this point these people have a lot of time and money invested and, and really if I screw up the whole thing, you know, ends with me. So, um, that was always ever present in the back of my mind. And then also just spending weeks leading up to it preparing 28 hours worth of playlists on mm-hmm. Spotify and then um, 28 hours worth of, of workout segments. So, luckily, like I said earlier, I've been teaching spin class since 1999. And for a bulk of my teaching, I kept a notebook where I wrote down Ooh, all the workouts that I did. Smart. <laughs> and I still had that. So, yes, thankfully I could go back and kind of mine mine it to a certain extent, although, like I mentioned, we weren't doing super high intensity given the duration. So mm-hmm. I had to kind of dumb down some of the intensity, but still maintain some structure, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Because really, the way the world record rule read is that this does have to be an organized spin class. It cannot just be people sitting on a bike and talking for 20 hours. Oh, okay. And we can't show movies, and we can't watch Kona replays, and we can't watch football. It's, it's not like that. It has to be like a spin class. With that in mind, I just came in with with as much structure as I could in order to keep things fresh and keep things moving. I did not let efforts drag on endlessly long. I kept the music moving. Um, And what Ryan and I had decided to do up front was to break it into two- and three-hour segments because the way the rules read, you earn five minutes of rest for every hour that you're on the bike. And knowing that people would want breaks that were 10 or 15 minutes longer Mm -hmm. obviously that meant we had to ride for two or three hours so that's what we did we put together a ride schedule ahead of time so that the riders would know when they could look forward to a 10 minute break Mm -hmm. or a 15 minute break and then I built the workout schedule accordingly and we had themes for music 80s 90s -hmm. kings of queens you know things like that for the different segments to keep it keep it fresh
0: so after all those hours, like are there any songs or any type of music that you don't ever, ever want to hear again?: <laughs> um, <laughs> No.
1: Uh, luckily, like the longest segment was only ever three hours, although I will say it's funny when you start to listen to the 2000s. For three hours straight yeah. it starts to sound a lot alike you know like cranberries and green day and oh <laughs> uh, wow it's like wow you all were actually not creative at all when you listen to it all in one block it got very like monochromatic if you will yeah and very similar sounding so that was that got a little bit old and uh the one other place where i kind of fell down a little bit was the segment that was supposed to be on movie themed songs um, I had delegated that to someone who basically just pulled soundtracks of movies mm. instead of picking songs that we would know from movies. So yeah. it was supposed to have been like a trivia, which would have kept us engaged. And instead, once I kind of got into the soundtrack and realized that none of us knew any of the songs from <laughs> the movies, I had to skip it and uh, and kind of call an Audible and pick another playlist. So, um, But other than that, it went pretty well. And I think um, people were pretty happy with the music. It was really fun, especially in the overnight hours when songs would come on that people knew really well yeah. and we'd be singing along, which
0: was fun. Yeah, it's, yeah, music's always a good uh, motivator. And, you know, luckily, it really can be. And luckily, they let you have music because, you know, you think about yes. most, you know, if you're going to do an Ironman, um, you probably train to music, but then on the actual event, you're alone with your thoughts.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, thankfully. And like I said, the psych- our studio is set up with cool light settings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm, I'm basically the DJ on the spin bike. I have two iPads to my right where one controls the atmosphere and the lighting, and then one controls the music and sound. And so I could modify all that kind of stuff to keep it sort of ever changing and fresh and, uh, really made a point during times that we were recovering or off the bike completely to kill the music entirely to give people kind of that mental break from the loud music for so long.
0: Yeah. Do you recall any events, highs or lows that you're just like, oh, man. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: The overnight hours got really ugly. And if we could go back, we would do this differently. But one of the things that we did that ended up being a, a troublesome scenario was that we did three three hour segments back to back in the overnight stretch. And that really put a lot of stress on people just Uh, For example, a lot of these men are used to getting up in the middle of the night and going pee Mm -hmm. and now suddenly they're having to hold it for like more or less nine hours with these short breaks. We're not sleeping. And then those three hour segments just felt long. And so it was just literally like focusing on the next minute or the next two minutes or Mm -hmm. the next 30 minutes to get to the next thing or the next change. And a lot of people were dealing with GI distress just Mm -hmm. from being in the same place. Um, you know, some people were eating crazy stuff. So I could kind of understand why their stomachs were upset. Right. I was eating things that I've historically come to expect worked well for me. And nevertheless, I started having really, really bad stomach trouble. Thankfully, we had an EMT in there and uh, he had some ginger and he ended up passing that around. And that saved a lot of us a big time. Ooh, that was okay. With like yeah. within an hour was a game changer. So That brought a lot of us back from the brink, and, um, you know, people were dealing with knee and back stuff. People could hardly walk. Um, You know, it's dark outside, so we can't even see the sunlight when we are taking breaks. The spectators and the media weren't coming at, you know, 2 in the morning. It was just a very um, low – it was a low time of the thing for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Actually, I can't imagine, but I'm listening. <laughs> I'm hearing you. <laughs> well, so fast forward to, you know, making that 28th hour. Do you remember how you felt? Like, I mean, I I got to watch you guys, you know, cheering and I was floored that most of you were able to even like get up and cheer after <laughs> yeah. that long sitting. But um, do you remember how it felt? Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say we all kind of
1: got our second wind a little bit too soon. And what I mean by that is we started to really perk back up and kind of feel as though we were almost done around 5 a.m. And that was obviously too soon to feel like we were done. So then Mm. I feel like we kind of hit another second sort of lull around kind of nine ish, nine, ten ish that morning because, you know, we're still looking at several hours to go. And then the TV crews and the film crews, a whole bunch of extra volunteers showed back up. Ryan started talking us through how the final part was going to go in terms of how we comply with the rules. At that point, the Guinness representative is on site. He's watching us and we're mm. trying to really like run a tight ship. And, you know, we could yeah. see the end and it's daylight now. So we could go stand out in the sun when we were taking our break. And then we knew from... 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. that that entire hour was us breaking the record so we took a break shortly before 10 and so basically when we got back on the bike we knew that every minute we were riding we were breaking the record and so we we put one foot in front of the other there was a lot of pictures and just a lot of activity that last hour which helped it go by quickly and then we did Mm -hmm. our final countdown and kind of staged for the the film crews and the photos and there was a bunch of confetti and um people brought donuts and it was that was Fantastic. Yeah. And then I was really, really ready to get out of that room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. And uh, I'm sure everybody wants to know, or at least I want to know, but what was recovery like? I mean, first of all, you had to figure out how to get your body to go to sleep. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm assuming you probably spent a lot of time in some compression boots and, you know, really <laughs> making your body, like, get back to normal.
1: You know, that all sounds really smart, actually, and that's what I <laughs> should have done. Uh, so, you know, the thing ended at 11. By the time we hung out and did photos and everything, it was probably about noonish on Monday. It felt like a time warp. It felt like we'd gone in at Thanksgiving, and suddenly it was December 3rd. It was really sure, disorienting. Yeah. You know, it's like the middle of the day on a Monday, and the whole world has no idea what you've just done and just super Mm -hmm. disorienting and all of us had these crazy notions that we were going to go like coach a basketball game or I was supposed to chair a board meeting that night and -and so-and-so was going to go into the office for a few hours you know we all thought we were going to go do things and then as the afternoon unfolded I just I kept bouncing into walls in my house I kept knocking stuff off the walls like bouncing into my um like door frames and stuff my sense of
0: perception was
1: way off and what I was trying to do was stay Mm -hmm. awake. so that I didn't screw up my sleep for that night. So I stayed awake until like Mm -hmm. 7 or 8 o'clock and then went to sleep that night. And so then I woke up the next day and get back to work because we had all just been out of work for the Thanksgiving break and I was feeling behind with work and this world record was really distracting leading up to it. And so a lot of us just kind of like got up and showered and went to work and thought that we'd be fine. (sighs) And I think for the first day or so, adrenaline kind of carried us and then the wheels just fell off. I mean, the wheels just fell off so hard. <laughs> and just all of us I think also just dealing with a little bit of post event depression, right? Where there's this, this huge build up oh, and then gosh. suddenly it's all over and this thing that you've been looking forward to and like all the endorphins and adrenaline and everything are, are done and and just being kind of sad about it and feeling like, mm. Well, that's not how I should be feeling and kind of beating yourself up for that in addition to being really fatigued well so then i went out and did a a bike ride with some friends that next weekend and my knee and my ankle was still really bothering me so i kind of just laid low a little bit and then i tried to do a 12-hour mountain bike race and um that was a problem that was a really big problem (laughs) (laughs) and that's when i full finally appreciated like megan you're in a bigger hole than you realize and so i pulled the plug (laughs) and i basically didn't work out for the last two weeks of december and just lots of yoga, lots of napping, sleeping 10 hours a night mm. and just like getting real with myself about how much this had put me in a hole and uh yeah. and I think everyone else did too. We had our celebration party on December 19th and people were still dealing with various maladies of numb fingers and neck and someone had seen the orthopedic person for their knee and you know we were all in kind of various mm. stages of breakdown still. So uh yeah, it was it was more significant than we appreciated I think.
0: Well, uh, any shout outs you want to make for, uh, you know, people that helped you or anyone out there? Oh,
1: absolutely. So first, I mean, obviously, Cycle Bar, the way they opened up their home to us and mm. just really, I mean, we, we took over that place. We trashed it. We left it full of graffiti and, and they were just <laughs> wonderful hosts. And in fact, I'm really excited to go um, back to instructing and teaching some spin classes there. I have really missed it having not taught for the last mm. couple of years. So I'm excited to join their family as an instructor definitely people for bikes for coming alongside us and giving us, you know, a purpose behind all of this and really helping us kind of elevate the, the ask of our community to make cycling safer. This is one of the most dangerous mm-hmm. years for cycling in Denver. Historically, we had I think seven cycling deaths here this summer. And so um, having their visibility added to this and just the, the media and the press that they added was was really great. And then um, champion system based there in Lincoln, Nebraska provided us with our apparel and so we had these amazing Hmm. um, cycling kits and they came alongside us Mm -hmm. as a supporter um, as did Crafted Energy, a really great energy bar out of Phoenix. Um, We also had chamois butter on board, keeping our butts adequately um, buttered up, which is imperative. Sure. (laughs) And uh, some friends at M&M Mars sent us a bunch of candy, which I really appreciated. And, um, you know, we just had so much support from so many different sources, it's it's almost impossible to, to list them all. But um, really, I think the biggest thank you is going to go to Breaking History and the film crew when we finally have this documentary that we can show and keep kind of using this event to continue elevating the importance of cycling safety.
0: Well, man, kudos to you and, and your crew and your team. And it's pretty it's pretty amazing to do you know this world record so congratulations thank
1: you i really appreciate that it's fun it's fun to have it in my rear view although i will say that ryan and i have plans of breaking a few more world records they are not cycling specific right now but we do have one that's up for later this year and i'm excited about that too so um yeah it's, it's always important i feel like one of the biggest Ways to be successful in life is not just to have a sense of purpose, but always have a goal that you're working towards and just have something on the horizon that, you know, excites you and lights you up. So, yeah, for me, at least, that really helps.
0: A quick interruption to tell you, this week's podcast is sponsored by Lizard Lips Lip Balm. These great lip balms contain natural ingredients, come in a variety of flavors, and you can choose certified organic or balms with sun protection. Check it out at lizardlips.net. Now, back to the show. Well, and speaking of goals, I saw somewhere on your social media that you logged over 5,000 miles on your bike in 2019. And I was wondering, like, was that a goal you set out to make? Or, like, what motivated you to be on your bike for over 5,000 miles?
1: So, um, I think I was, I was right around 7,100 last year. And wow. that's pretty... Standard. It was usually between 7,000 and 10,000 a year, mm-hmm. especially when I was racing full time. Um, and then in 2018, I set a goal of my, for myself to ride 10,000 miles, which was a pretty audacious goal for someone right. who's not yeah. a professional cyclist anymore. And that was a really big, that was a really big goal. Like that hung over me on a daily basis for all of 2018, because you cannot let too many days go by without riding and still make that goal, or at least I couldn't. When 2018 ended and I successfully got the the 10,000 miles, I decided I didn't want to do that to myself again in 2019. But my goal was to ride more miles than I drove in my car. And unfortunately, I was really good up through about October. And then unfortunately, November, December, I ended up driving and ended up with like 9,000 miles on my car and 7,100 miles on my bike. So I fell short. So this year, my goal is to ride 8,000 miles, but also have that be more miles than I drive in my car. So my approach to this is I'm going to try and calibrate every mm-hmm. month. So do an odometer check and a Strava check, see where I'm at. And if I'm if I'm ahead with bike miles, great. And if I'm ahead with car miles, then basically the car is going to need to sit for a little bit while I catch up with the bike. And that's kind of how I'm going to approach it.
0: Well, and obviously with that sort of goal, you ride year round. So do mm-hmm. you have a variety of do you have a variety of bikes that you choose from, like based on uh, where your location is or your road conditions or weather? Yeah,
1: definitely. I at one point my my stable had grown to 16 bikes and it was just oh, out of control and it was like a bike for every single different thing. You know, um, gravel, cyclocross, road, track, yeah. triathlon, commuter bike, you know, a couple mountain bikes. Uh, full suspension hardtail you know it was, it was out of control and so I really um, I've, I've been in this space of uh, simplicity and no clutter for the last couple of years and with that I've been gradually selling off bikes and really mm-hmm. kind of getting down to like what are my core bikes for my core uses one game changer for me has been the addition of an e-bike mm-hmm. and um, I didn't realize I, I did not expect to enjoy it as much as I have and the reason for that is because it makes commuting so much more feasible and Mm. what i mean by that is when i used to just ride a regular bike you know it definitely involved a certain level of fatigue and then when it was time to actually do intervals or do some training i was kind of consistently fatigued from all the commuting so that my training was not as effective Mm. the e-bike i can be in work clothes and work shoes and jeans and normal stuff and i can be averaging 20 miles an hour without breaking a sweat oh yeah and so i'm I'm getting places in less time. I have a a big basket on the back. I can carry 30 pounds worth of groceries. Like, I can get more done on the bike. Mm-hmm. And um, it also has a front and rear light. It has fenders. It has a little built-in horn. Like, it's just more robust. It it weighs about 50 pounds. And last week, the, the wind here in Golden was like 35-mile-an-hour wind. Wow. I would never ride my road bike in that kind of wind. But on the e-bike, I actually felt pretty stable and safe. Mm-hmm. So that's been a game changer for my commuting and really just having that be accessible to me for any of my trips, kind of regardless of whether I'm feeling up to it or not. Really, the only thing for me now is just if the temperature is too cold. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my my consistent commuter. Otherwise, I just use a a road bike to kind of get around and then road bike for training. The gravel bike situation, especially down in Arizona, where there is more gravel to ride is a really nice thing because then you just get away from cars completely. We don't have a whole lot of gravel options here in golden. You're pretty much either on the road or you're on some very technical mountain bike trails. There's really nothing in between. Um, and then I do have a mountain bike and I, and I do enjoy that because for one thing I can tow the Burley with my dogs in it and that's Mm -hmm. nice. It's got disc brakes. So, you know, the Burley with the two dogs it weighs about 130 pounds, it's Mm -hmm. really important to have disc brakes to slow that down. Um, and then sometimes it is just nice again to get off the roads and get out on the dirt. And, uh, and the mountain bike is really good for that too. So, um, years back, I had a coach that told me you're, you're not actually overtraining or burned out. You just need more like tools in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that because he's not wrong that sometimes you just don't feel like riding the road bike. Like for whatever reason, your head's just not in that space, mm-hmm. but to get the gravel bike out on the gravel trails or to take the you know, the mountain bike, whatever, like it just, is a different set of stimulus, stimuli. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden you're excited to ride again. So um, that's kind of my core quiver of bikes.
0: Yeah. That, I, I appreciate his advice too. Cause that's, it does make a lot of sense that he's, it is, it is mm-hmm. I, I don't have 16 bikes, but I have a lot of bikes um, but I'm like, so attached to them, I am I would have a hard time selling, yes. but but it's nice to have, you know, like the fat bike when it's snowing or the road bike exactly. or the touring bike and like exactly what you said and um, e-bikes on my list. I just haven't taken the plunge yet on that one. But uh, so when you're you know, not-
1: I'll tell you, I actually, oh, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I had a fat bike for a while and that really was kind of my thought was this will give me an option to ride in the snow. And what I kept finding was that here in Golden, for it to be decent enough to ride the snow on the fat bike, it had to be really cold because it's as sunny oh. as it gets here. It gets slushy really quickly. Oh, sure. And so I just wasn't riding the fat bike because it was if it was that cold, then it was typically too cold for me to be out. Yeah. Um, I'll draw the line really just on temperature. And Anyway, I'll ride anything, but if I'm cold, I'm in trouble. So anyway, I ended up selling the fat bike and also sold a belt drive single speed bike that Ooh. I had raced in one, um, gravel, gravel world, single speed. And I used those two bikes and you're, you're not wrong. It's, it's emotionally difficult <laughs> right. to let go of bikes that you're yeah. attached to. <laughs> but, uh, but I combined those two into the fat bike, or, I'm sorry, into the e-bike and yeah. I can use the e-bike in crappy weather, uh, it does fine when it's really cold and it's got wider tires and plus with the
0: fenders and stuff. I don't get all slushy. So. Oh yeah. That's, that's awesome. Well, uh, one last question when you're not biking, sure. where can you be found? Are you doing other outdoor sports, indoor sports? Obviously you're working a lot. You know, um, that's a
1: great question. I am actually really starting kind of to my point earlier about when you merge your passion and profession, sometimes it can just frankly be too much bike. And I do love bikes and it's definitely central in my life, but I've, certainly been looking for other things to do that have nothing to do with bikes. So one of my recent new hobbies is photography. I bought myself a new camera Mm -hmm. at Christmas and I'm really enjoying taking pictures of friends and other business owners and helping them kind of show their essence of who they are or who their business is to their customers. And I'm really enjoying that a lot. I rode, rode bikes yesterday in, in Scottsdale with a girlfriend who had a brand new bike. And just taking pictures of her and like capturing her in that environment, it just it brought me so much joy. Yeah, cool. um, I am a voracious reader. I do not watch television. I will occasionally watch a movie on Amazon Prime, but I devour books, usually one a week or so. I have just been on this um, recent reading path of books like Soul Badical. I'm reading one right now called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it it sounds dark, but it's also incredibly uplifting too, right? Like to hear the things that people express on their deathbed. Just reading books like those that are really um, intriguing to me and asking difficult and interesting questions to ask. Um, I just launched a women's mastermind. So I'm going to be coaching this group of women business owners for the next year. And that's really exciting for me to think about kind of imparting some of the things that I've learned. And um, I do run and am training for my first 50k trail run uh it's called Thirty Thirty 30 and it's here in golden in in late may and the cool part about it is, is i can ride my bike to and from the race so there will be no car oh, involved in in that which is super fun. <laughs>
0: cool yeah um
1: so i'll be running a bit more which is which is great it's a nice um change and it's a totally different community of people and i have two dogs and i really really enjoy walking my dogs and being outside with my dogs
0: oh cool so
1: um
0: yeah That's awesome. From my point of view, because, you know, I I really don't know you besides, you know, the time we've had on this podcast, but what I see of you on social media and the comments that people make to you, I find like you're an inspiration to a lot of people. And it's obvious you give off like... I'm going to say a great and powerful energy. I mean, I just, you can feel it. Yeah. You can just feel it when you see posts from you or see other people praising you or like you can, you motivate a lot of people. So, um, so I guess I do. Yeah. So I do have one last question. What advice would you give someone who needs a boost?
1: Boy, great question. Cause man, I have been one of those people for the last (laughs) little bit here um, that it's been kind of a tough season in life in general for me. And, um, and people say, well, I would never guess that from looking on your social media. And, and I, I guess to answer your question, my point is this, it's not that I'm being disingenuous. It's not that I'm having some difficulty over here and yet I'm projecting this false and fake image. What I would say is that I just choose to focus my time and energy and my um, attention on things that are positive, because the human experience is incredibly difficult. And I don't care who you are, or where you're at, like, we are all dealing with difficult mm-hmm. things now mm-hmm. and always. It's just a hard world that we live in. And I think we have a choice about what we perpetuate, what we repost, what we reshare, what we circulate, what we talk about, what we focus our thoughts and our minds on. And um, my default always, even when I'm having a really hard time is to go back to what I know. And for me, sleep is the ultimate reset and to gift yourself with extra sleep and good sleep and then getting outside and being in sunshine and moving. And even if it's just walking or just sitting outside, it's critical. And then really focusing on what you feed yourself and having proper sustenance. Like to me, those three things are so foundational that um, i always start there if i'm really starting to to fall apart and things are going sideways so start with what you know works for you and then i would say the fourth part of that is get really curious and investigate the things that are undermining you so we all have these vices or these um kryptonite is what i call them these achilles heels and for me for years it was drinking and i quit drinking a few years back and that's been a game changer um, but it could be social media, it could be scrolling, it could be mindless mm-hmm. shopping, it could be um, any any number of, of bad habits. And um, if you find that something like that is undermining you, my challenge would really be to just try to go without it for mm-hmm. 30 days and see what that does for your headspace and your mindset. Um, like I said earlier, I think it's also really important that we have a sense of purpose. And if you don't know your purpose, then start by just setting a goal and have it have a a definitive deadline or date attached or have it be measurable, have it be specific enough that you can measure whether or not you've attained it. I think we all, um, I always use the example of, I don't know how people just go to the gym to stay in shape. Like to me, that's not inspiring. I have to have an event or something specific Mm, that I'm training for. Um, And kind of similar in life too. Like, I don't think that any of us really thrive in a space of, Oh, I just want to live a happy life. I mean, yes we do, but, what does that actually look like and getting really clear and specific on what we're working towards, Um, which is why I I do talk openly about, um, you know, funerals and end of life planning, because it's important for us to know really what what the end game is and what we're working Mm -hmm. towards and what we're hoping to accomplish in our short time here. So I get pretty focused, hyper-focused at times about making use of the short life that we have. But to me, that's how you come at getting stuck in this, Sort of endless swirl of confusion and, um, and feeling like we don't matter, or that we don't have impact or that we don't, we're don't we not making a difference, um, just getting really hyper-focused on what we can do with the time that we have. And then, like I said, staying ridiculously focused on the positives mm-hmm. and just pointing your eye there. And, and even earlier today, I just unfriended someone on Facebook because they just left a really snarky message on a post of mine. <laughs> and I thought, I just don't have time for this. I just don't have time for that. I don't need that in my life. I don't need it around me she's, she's obviously welcome to her own views and opinions. But like, yeah. I just don't need that in my life. And I think we all need to give ourselves a bit more of that freedom as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and we all, we make the choice every time you do anything, whether you choose to be positive or negative. So exactly right. it's, it really is all about the choice. Yes. I mean, you know, you can kind of go through life and be like, God, my life is awful, yes. but you're choosing to pick, you're choosing to view that side That's of things. Right. But man, I love your, those three things, sleep, movement, and fuel, because I can, I can give you, I won't, but I can give you all kinds of examples of when I don't get a good night's sleep or I am too static. Like you can tell a huge difference. So those are great. That's right. I'm going to put a, I'm going to write those somewhere and then put your name after it Yeah, like like, as if you discovered it.
1: (laughs) Well, right. Yes. Let's patent that right now. (laughs) I want to put a trademark on that, but you know, that's the funny thing. It's a great point that you raise, which I think so often we're looking for this like magic bullet or the secret sauce. And for me, it's so simple that that's often why it's lost on most people. It's like, well, that's not going to help. Well, why not just start with those three and see what happens? And, one of my other favorite go-tos, and I've been in this space, like I said, for the last few months, is when I'm really struggling, I will reach out to people in my life and just try to, like, boost them. So how are you doing? What can I do for you? Can mm-hmm. I babysit your kid? Can we have coffee? Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's just a matter of, like, getting out of your own head and not focusing so much on yourself and just being of service to someone else. Or at least for me, like, taking pictures of my friend yesterday on her bike, like, that just felt so great for me that that absolutely boosted my mm-hmm. mood on a day when I was kind of struggling otherwise. And so I think sometimes just focusing on using your gift to benefit someone else if you're in kind of the swirl um, that that tends to, to lift my spirits.
0: Well, and speaking of lifting spirits, I don't know if you're willing to share your Instagram handle, but oh, sure. you, you know, like the books that you mentioned, you, you list the books on your Instagram, you have great photos, you have super inspiring oh, stuff. Thanks. So if you're willing to share, I think Yeah, you of course.
1: Yeah. My, my business, um, handle is at cyclist underscore lawyer. And then I have a personal feed as well, which is at Megan Hotman, um, which is off topic non-business. Um, non-legal type stuff Um, and uh, yeah I do my best to try and um, I guess what I would say is I see so many lawyers being pitchy and salesy and it's the reason why none of us like lawyers and um, my platform has always been how can we educate people to be safer cyclists and safer motorists and so we really Mm -hmm. focus our Again, it's just all about where you focus your time and your attention and your and your talents and your money and stuff so we, we try to at least just have an educational impact and if people want to hire us great and if they don't that's totally fine too uh, um, we we don't believe in marketing or you know, sales because no one wants that in their life I certainly yeah,
0: don't <laughs> yeah truth yeah well Megan thank you so much for being on the podcast thanks like, what a Yeah, what a joy to talk to you, and um, I look forward to um, just, you know, seeing what you're up to each day, and uh, more importantly, these new world records you may be going for. (laughs) Yeah, I'll keep you posted.
1: (laughs) I'll keep (laughs) you posted, and as soon as the episode for this last one is posted, I will definitely send you that link, but for now, you can just reference BreakingHistory.tv. That is where it will eventually be posted.
0: BreakingHistory.tv. Awesome. Well, thank you, Megan. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, how about a tip? Megan mentioned People for Bikes in this week's podcast, and I wanted to dig a bit deeper into this great organization. This national nonprofit was launched in 1999, and they have a pretty simple focus to make bicycling better. People for Bikes includes both an industry coalition of bicycling businesses as well as a charitable foundation. They spend millions. I say, millions of dollars making bicycling better. This includes community bicycling projects like Safe Routes to School for Kids, and also involvement in great organizations like the League of American Bicyclists. The People for Bikes website is full of bicycle-related information, including important policy news, as well as fun information like trail riding, city riding, and just general info on Places for Bikes. They work on things you probably think about, but don't have the time or knowledge to act on. This includes federal, state, and local pro-bike laws. Many of the decisions made in Washington, D.C. affect bicycling at our local level, and People for Bike reps are on the front line meeting regularly with Congress to promote pro-bike legislation. They also have a big campaign to pass progressive e-bike laws in every state. They stand up for us cyclists and they explain how people and places benefit from bike rides. I've been lucky enough to meet and ride my bike with Doc B from People for Bikes. Shout out to Doc B. So Dr. Jennifer Boldry is director of research and she looks at data, lots and lots of data. She researches, measures, and quantifies how and why bicycling produces positive outcomes. Outcomes meaning happier and healthier people and communities that become better places to live. Keep up the incredible work, Doc B. I've also had the great pleasure to work with Eric Brodell, the engagement manager. He heads up a cool series of events across the U.S. called Draft Meetup. Hopefully draft meetups exist in your state. If they do, you must go check out the next draft in your area. You can check out more information about draft on the People for Bikes website, peopleforbikes.org. You also need to check out Ridespot.org. This is a People for Bikes app that is super simple to use. It's a great resource for finding bike routes and rides in your area, as well as info about your community. It's an awesome tool to use when you travel to new places and want to jump on a bike. So check out Ridespot.org and add that app to your phone as soon as possible. So overall, peopleforbikes.org is a great place to go for so much bike-related information. And the best part, it's free to join, peopleforbikes.org. If you're for bikes, you should join People for bikes, ASAP. That's this week's tip. Go to your favorite podcast platform and please subscribe, rate, and review the Morphology Podcast. Also, check out morphologypodcast.com to find all kinds of great info. And if you have a topic, email me at morphologypodcast at gmail.com. I appreciate your time today, and thanks for tuning in to listen to this week's episode. I'll leave you with this quote from The Unwritten Book of Morphology. This quote comes from Joe Duncan. If you're going to quit anything, quit being lazy... Quit making excuses and quit waiting for the right time. Think about it.